Welcome back to the Film Review Shack. He's Daniel. And he's Darian. Today, we will be talking about two movies directed by Quentin Tarantino, Django Unchained, and The Hateful Eight, two films that are inspired by spaghetti westerns. Django Unchained will be our first movie of the day. The film had a budget of $100 million, and it made a whopping $426 million at the box office. To start off, we're going to get into some of the incredible acting, Academy Award-winning acting, that was in this film. Darian, take it away. All right, well, we can start this off by talking about Christoph Waltz, the actor who won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for this film. Christopher Waltz is such an interesting personality for me. I really think he does a great job in this role, and it works for him so well because he has a, like a military precision to his acting, and his lines in this movie are so quick and witty, and the way that he's able to deliver them with his personality works so seamlessly with the character. It really nails that vibe of the character, how he kind of feels like he's better than everyone else, and he's, you know, he's European, and he's different, so his vibe is completely different than the other actors in this movie, and his, his cadence and his delivery is different, which distinguishes him and makes him such a special character in this movie. Absolutely. This role is totally tailored for his acting abilities. Now, what did you think about some of the comedy that he brought to this role. I think the comedy he brings is a breath of fresh air in this movie. Such a heavy movie, there's a lot going on that without any of the comedy that he brings or any of the other comedy in the movie, it'd be a very difficult watch because it would be so intense all the time. So the comedy that he brings and his quick wittiness, it gives the viewer a chance to breathe and to kind of reflect on the rest of the stuff that's happening while his lines are less important to be super focused on. He kind of relax a little bit. Yes, I think throughout the film, he has such a common collected persona, even through some of the serious events that take place through the film. And it's really funny to watch for the audience to give you a break from the serious matter of this film. And something the audience needs, I think, is his ability to uh, to bring that to the table. Yeah, I totally agree. What did you think of our lead actor, Jamie Foxx, in this movie? I think one of his best roles of his career, and I think he's not praised enough for the work that he did in this film, and an example would be he did not receive an Oscar nomination for this at all, even though some of the castmates that had a smaller part in the film did. What do you think? Do you think he deserved an Academy Award nomination? I think that a nomination is warranted. I don't think he would have been a deserving winner because uh, this movie, it kind of really plays into his personality a lot. It's very cool guy, calm, collected, which Jamie Foxx just does so well because he's such a talented and, and cool person in general, where I think he kind of falls down a little bit at the start because he's too cool and he's he's almost unbelievable that he could just be some other slave like when he's in the lineup it's obvious that jamie fox is our hero character and you know there's some points where he's struggling to read or he needs to be a less cool persona and he kind of has a little bit of a difficulty doing that it still does a great job but that's where i just don't feel like he's deserving of a a win but still deserving of a nomination yeah i agree with that i don't think he would have won for that year but i think he definitely deserved a nomination he brings a certain level of tragedy to the film that is really great acting within it and super tough acting for that yes that's a good point and of course we've got the third big star of four Leonardo DiCaprio, who is very well known for this role as well, as he's mostly well known for all of his roles. But this one, he's got some pretty special scenes in it. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I think aside from most of his typical roles, he has such a terrifying persona in this. And one of the only true times that he plays a complete villain. And just like everything else he does, he brings the character to what it needs to be. He nails the acting head on and it terrifies anybody that watches it. 
Yeah, he really convinces you that he is an evil person, that he is truly a racist, bad person. Finally, the fourth big star, Samuel L. Jackson, plays a pretty interesting character, in my opinion. I think he is kind of this conflicted character because he's so separated from the rest of the slaves because he's Candy's right-hand man. That Sam Jack does a really good job of capturing this person that's conflicted between kind of appreciating the position he's in while still having a terrible life because he's a slave. Yeah, and similar to Leonardo DiCaprio's character, he also has such an evil persona within it, which is also very untypical for us to see. We don't see that very often from him. He's usually playing a cop or something like that. And the dynamic of him being evil in this movie was really interesting. Yeah, it's kind of weird how the heroes in this movie often play villains, and the villains in this movie often play heroes. Now, Daniel, what did you think about the screenplay and the structure of this movie? I thought it was fantastic. I really like how Tarantino uses a bit of the structure of the hero's journey but then also keeps it his own and doesn't follow that to a T like a movie like Star Wars did. Uh, You know, it starts out in the beginning, he's in this familiar place as a slave, and then right away gets taken out of that and sent on this big giant adventure with a mentor. And then at the end of the movie, we get him returning back to his slave roots, back to the familiar world, but he's changed and that is very beneficial and Tarantino kind of uses that to spin the last scene into this this craziness and uh, let's Jamie Foxx's character, Django, get retribution. And so I really appreciate how he uses building blocks of storytelling, but then keeps it his own and kind of keeps you on the edge of what's going to happen, where is the story going, because it's not cookie cutter. Right. And aside from other movies that also follow the hero's journey template, I think due to the circumstances of the film, the change in Django becomes more crucial and more important. And it holds so much more once he's gone from the unfamiliar place back to the familiar place, but he's gained so much and that makes it so much more important. Yeah, his change just keeps on going and going in this movie. You get to midway point and you think, okay, this is the character he is now. But then he just keeps on developing and his arc just keeps on growing and growing, even all the way through to the end of the movie. I also really like Tarantino's writing in this movie for the Dr. King character. We already touched on how Christoph Waltz had great delivery, but I think the writing is such a great part of that as well. And it really makes Dr. King seem so much smarter than all the, the other antagonists in this movie and his his wit and his ability to be smart outside of obvious sight of the viewer gives a a, like a surprise and it's it's really interesting how his smartness just kind of jumps up on the viewer and it's not obvious that it's coming right and the dialogue that he's given through the screenplay just like you said makes him superior to all the antagonists through that he almost manipulates them in certain ways but he's also doing it in a funny manner where there's certain scenes in the saloon and stuff like that where you just really have no choice but to sit and laugh at the way he handles the situations and how much comedy he brings to that. Yeah, I love that you brought up the saloon scene because that's one of my favorite examples of Dr. King's smartness in this and how, you know, they come in the saloon and it's this kind of comedic scene. But then in the end, he used it all to his advantage by bringing a black man into the saloon, knowing that they would go get the sheriff and that's the guy that he wanted to kill. And that was totally unexpected because you thought, oh, this is just a scene about them entering this agreement. Yes, it was a prime example in the film of just him controlling everybody around him, controlling the situation, and it showed total control of everything that he was doing throughout the film and now he had a grip on everything mm-hmm. yeah he's the the true manipulator of this movie one other thing i'd like to talk about were some of the special effects in this movie what did you think about them oh i thought they were so great 
I love the blood and I love how it's realistic. It does kind of go over the top sometimes, but it still is serving the story and it's not just blood for the sake of blood. How about you? What did you think? Yeah, I mostly get the far-fetched impression of it, especially if we're going to talk about that final scene or one of the final shootout scenes. Not very realistic, but just for me, it adds a lot more enjoyment. When a director like Quentin Tarantino or a Martin Scorsese, Francis Coppola direct action sequences like that, I always find it so much greater than most action movies, honestly, because they, as directors, add such a dynamic to these action scenes that not a lot of other people can. Yeah, I totally agree. And to touch on that, Quentin Tarantino opens up the first special effects of this movie is a guy getting the back of his head blown off. And when Dr. King shoots the guy on top of the horse there and then shoots the horse through the head, it's just it's so shocking to start off that way. Like you get a close up frame of a guy's head getting blown off. And it's, it's like, wow, okay, this is what it's going to be. The blood and gore, it's going to be in your face this movie. Get ready. Yes, it's a great way to engage the audience in true Tarantino fashion. Yeah, exactly. How about we talk about some of the production design and cinematography that was shown in this movie? For sure. Now, you know, I can talk all day about the cinematography, so why don't you lead us off here? with some of the set design. I really enjoyed, even from the beginning when they're traveling through all the saloons and everything, it really gives the old Western set feel where you're watching something that would be done by Sergio Leone or something like that in the era of spaghetti Westerns. You can see the influence there that came from earlier works. And I think it was a really great element to add to this film. For sure, yeah, the sets on this are are awesome and they're super, I mean, I can only imagine realistic, uh, but it gives a great feel to the movie. I also really like the wardrobes in this movie. I found they really represented and reflected the characters really well. You've got Dr. King. Throughout the whole movie, he's in this gray suit and it starts off more avant-garde. He's got all the frills and then it just becomes a more plain gray suit, but it kind of shows how he's a consistent character all the way through. And it's really different to the way that Django is dressed throughout this movie. His first, like, big costume change he's in this really bright blue suit and it just shows how he's become a totally different person and he wants to now show off that he's a different person by standing out from everyone and that really helps when he's on the plantation really separates him from everyone else in the movie and then his costume becomes a little more subdued as he kind of settles into his role with dr king and then at the end after dr king passes away and he's coming back to get his retribution he's again in a more flashy costume but it's still not as flashy as the first costume change that they had so it shows how he is embraced who he is as well of what he has learned through his journey yeah it's interesting you say that it's something i didn't quite notice when watching it but when you think about it that way it matches the character's traits currently as it's being displayed on the film. And like you mentioned, when he's wearing the total blue outfit, it's almost like he skyrockets into a new, well, new costume for one, and new circumstances. Now, what did you think about the camera work that was used in this film and the angles they decided to use? I think this movie is a masterclass in cinematography. It has everything. It has a great variation of shots. It uses static shots. It uses moving shots. It uses different lenses very well, from zoom lenses to long lenses to wide-angle lenses. It kind of gives everything that you want in camera work. And it all feels appropriate, and it all adds to the storytelling of the movie. Like, there's one really good scene in when they're doing the agreement. It's very long lens, very tight close-up 
And that just adds so much more intensity to that scene when really there isn't very much intensity. It's just them entering an agreement. But the camera work makes it feel tense. Yes, for sure. That selective use of those angles definitely helps that. When you use an angle like that that's zoomed in on a character, you're drowning out everybody else in the room. And so you're forced to focus on this one character and what seems like intensity that's coming off of them, for sure. Mm-hmm. I also think the movie does a great job of different sizings of shots. Like you get a lot of shots that are close-ups. You get a lot of medium shots. But I really like the full body shots that they use especially the ones where they have someone in the foreground and then the another characters in the background in a full body shot and they're interacting back and forth and as well the focus pulling is then going from your person in the foreground to your person in the background and it gives an interesting dynamic because the person in the foreground is a medium shot and the person in the background is a full shot one thing that i like about the camera work sometimes you have these zoom-ins where they hold such meaning and one example of this is when you first meet calvin candy leonardo dicaprio's character and he does that turnaround to show his face to the camera and he's got that smile but you know it's an evil smile on his face and it zooms right in on it and you're like whoa yeah there's a couple points in the movie where they use really quick zoom in it's kind of like a hero shot but they're using it for more than just the hero yeah that definitely makes sense I also really like the way that they use warm and cool colors. Most of the movie is is warmer colors, but then you get the flashback scenes, which are cold colors and also the use of Dutch angles and lots of lens flares. I think it gives a really good comparison to like, okay, this is what's happening and then this is the past of what Django is remembering. And it shows you how brutal that past remembering is because it's so differently shot and so cold and, and dark and and tilted compared to the rest of the movie yeah i like that you brought that up the lighting they chose to use definitely helped set the mood like you just described but one thing i also found is they did a great job of lighting for atmosphere so whether you've got some scenes that take place in the winter some that take place out in the heat um, what can be assumed as summer or a close boundary between seasons and even between the indoor shots i think the lighting just makes total sense for the whole movie even in the opening sequence where you've got the light coming off of dr king schultz's wagon and it's in the dark atmosphere it's a really great use of lighting as well yeah i really love that scene how they have a lot of negative fill and it makes the scene really dramatic was there anything in this movie shot wise that really stood out to you or really stuck in your mind i don't think there were any particular shots I just think, well, to start with the overall scope of all the shots throughout the movie, but then the zoom lenses also really stood out to me. When I think of zoom lenses in a film, this is probably the number one example that comes to mind for me. Yeah, I love the use of zoom lenses. I also find really interesting, there's a couple shots in this movie where they shoot directly into the sun, and you get some really beautiful lens flares. And it's not much, it doesn't add that much to the movie, and it's not super unique, but I just, I love how they integrated it, and I thought it was really cool. Another thing I want to talk about is the music and scoring that came in this film. I think such a great soundtrack throughout the whole film. You've even got a song that has Django's name in it. Can't go wrong there. But one thing I really love is that in the first half of the movie, every time Dr. King Schultz has talked his way out of a situation or something like that, you've got this almost like funny drum roll sound effect that plays after it. How did that play for you? Oh, I I loved it. I think all the sound effects in this movie are really great. They're so poignant and they're in your face like that. I think they're mixed a little higher than the dialogue. 
So it's like you notice them. It's not something that it's going to slip by and you're just going to see as or hear as any other part of the movie. They're deliberate and they stand out. Yes, I think the editing on the sound effects is so tight that even in scenes or sequences like the final action one, there are some time changes within the action sequence. Sometimes it's what would be normal speed and then you've got probably about 30 seconds of slow down speed and the sound is so tight and so accurate to what you're seeing on the screen. They do a really good job of that. Yeah, and I like how they don't distort the sound even when it slows down. So it kind of gives you a, a, like a discombobulated feel, even though the sound is still matching with what you're seeing. Right, it doesn't fully take away everything from you, which is a really clever way to do that. Going back to the music, I just loved the variety that they had. Like It goes from everything from classical to like a, a soul, to hip-hop, to rock. Like it's got everything in this movie, and it's all used very well, and it's they all set different moods, and they match the scene perfectly. Yes, I was just about to talk about that if you weren't going to, but I was just about to say, so much variance in the songs, and they perfectly match the mood. Um, you've got some sad, slower songs when there's things on the screen that are portrayed as a little more negative and then you've got the song during the action sequence where it even has ad-libs from jamie fox and it's like he's gonna come out and be this badass and even in the opening sequence when they use that song django um some of the lyrics also match the situation at hand yeah i really love the opening theme and how powerful that is to set up the whole movie did you have a, a favorite song from this movie or is it just just all really great for you I think if I had to pick one song that stood out, it was at the end of it, there's a song that was done by John Legend when he's going for Avengers at the end of the film that really played to the mood, I think, for me, even maybe greater than some of the other ones. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. What about you? Was there any pieces that did it for you? Yeah, I really loved the rap song when they're traveling to Candyland. It, you know, Jamie Foxx's character, Django, is riding on a horse and you get this this rap coming in. And it just makes him feel so cool. And then the next scene, they get to Candyland and he is so cool. Like he's just got the swagger and it, it sets it up perfectly. And I think I just love how the song made that first scene so cool leading into a scene that didn't need the song to be so cool. Yeah, I'm not too much of a hip-hop fan myself either, but there's a certain amount of electricity that comes to hip-hop music, and that definitely matched the mood in that scene there. Yeah, for sure. Well, why don't we talk about the ending of the film? Such a powerful ending. Yeah, I really enjoyed the ending. I really like how it mimics the start as well as, you know, Dr. King in the start comes and takes Django and frees the other slaves that are with him. And in the end, Django doesn't have Dr. King anymore, but he's able to free himself and in the fashion that Dr. King taught him also frees the slaves that were with him. Yes, it's a great example of the hero's journey that played a part in this movie and he learned everything from King Schultz and then obviously portrayed that in the final scene there. Yeah. Now, what did you think about the special effects of the last scene? Oh, well, there's lots. I really like the big explosion for sure. You know, I think it's really cool how after the explosion happens, you get Jamie Foxx's Django just standing there and the rubble's so close to him. And I just couldn't help thinking in my mind, like he just stood there and let everything come straight at him. And it's like there's burning wood at his feet and behind him. I thought it was, it was really cool. How about you? What do you think of the special effects there? 
Yeah, for sure. When we talk about how he responded to the house blowing up and everything, he just was totally unfazed. Everything was good from that moment. And I think he reached a peak of what he had learned from King Schultz and his character growth in that moment there. Yeah, it's a, it's a perfect denouement. And one thing I really liked before the explosion, a decision they made in the editing process was to actually cut Samuel L. Jackson off. He was in the middle of speaking and then the explosion happens. I think that was a really funny way to maybe portray some accuracy into the film as well. Yeah, and it's like how we were saying, like, that comedy kind of cuts the intensity of it. And especially in the last scene, there's, you know, you've gone through this whole movie and it's been so intense. That little comedic cutoff of Sam Jack and then the explosion happening kind of lets you sit back and enjoy the last scene in a little bit. Absolutely. And even in the next few minutes after that house blowing up, seeing the two of them like so happy was also a great way to wrap that up and for us to see them like they're smiling, they're playing with the horses, just like actually having a good time, like a genuine good time Mm -hmm. was a really beautiful moment for the end of that film. Yeah, it's a great way to wrap it up and Django finally getting the retribution that he deserved. Absolutely. Now, I guess it's time for us to get into a rating. I'll give the first rating today. Already have at it. I think one of my favorite movies from Tarantino and one of his best, I'm going to go with an 8.5 today. Ooh, I like that. All right. Well, I was actually thinking of also going with an 8.5 and I think I'll stick with that. I think it's it's a tremendous movie. Again, also one of my favorites from Tarantino. Uh, cinematography and this is one of my favorites that I've seen recently. But I don't think it's it's an all-time movie. I don't think it's like 2001 or The Shining or Apocalypse Now or The Godfather or other movies like that. But I think it's really close. Like if I were to put it on a tier list, it would be an A tier for sure. So 8.5. Yeah, and I think compared to the other movies you just listed, I think in time it can probably reach that level, especially with the caliber of films that are coming out now these days. I think it really stands out. I think in 20 years it'll have a staple like that. That is it for our review of Quentin Tarantino's Django Unchained. Next up, we'll be getting into a draft of the top five Quentin Tarantino movies. Stay tuned. And we're back. It's time for the draft. Top five Quentin Tarantino movies. Darian and I will go back and forth as usual, both giving our top five lists. Darian... It's your turn to go first this week, so have at it. Okay, my number one pick. I gotta take it. I gotta start strong. Pulp Fiction. Of course. We both knew that was gonna be the first pick. So I guess I'm gonna have to to counter that with Kill Bill Volume 1. I'm okay with that. My number two pick, I gotta go with Django Unchained. Man, my list is gonna be weak. Okay, uh, I'm going to go with my number two. I'm going to go his first movie, his first feature movie, Reservoir Dogs. That was my next pick. Good one on that one. I'm going to go with one of his earlier works now. At my number three, I'm going to take Jackie Brown. All right. Good thing I had that lower on my list. So Now I get the one I really want. I'm going to go with my number three, his most recent film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Again, my next one. But at my number four, I'm going to take another great one of his, Inglorious Bastards. Ah, that was my next. Well done. Okay, well, there's only a few left, so I guess I'm going to have to take the sequel to my first pick, Kill Bill Volume 2. All right, solid choice. I'm going to take, for my number five, his one and only horror film. I'm going to go with Death Proof. 
Uh, I was hoping that would slip to me. Well, I got to wrap it up with his final feature film. One of our movies from this week. Not a great showing, I guess. The Hateful Eight. Number five for me. Well, that's the draft this week. Pretty equal list, I would say. Yeah, I think we both uh, we both got some of our picks that we wanted in there. For sure. All right, stay tuned. Next up, we'll be reviewing The Hateful Eight. Now it's time to get to our next movie, The Hateful Eight. The Hateful Eight, another movie written and directed by Quentin Tarantino, released in December of 2015. The principal photography started in January of the same year on a budget of around $50 million. The movie was originally conceived as a sequel to Django Unchained, but was scrapped after the script was leaked. Quentin decided to release the script as a novel and directed a live table reading of the book. This led to Quentin picking the project back up with a revised script. So, to kick this off, let's talk about the story and acting. Okay. For me, the story was a little bit bland. It had a clear purpose in the beginning, but you kind of lose sight of it as the film goes on and on, and it becomes more of a character-based film, and you're seeing all the actions of the characters, and the story kind of slowly fades out for me. Yeah, I totally agree. This is a very character-driven story, a lot of dialogue, and I found it to be quite slow, especially in the beginning before they get to any of the action. As far as the acting goes, I thought it was pretty cool. I like how many different personalities there are in this film, and each actor does a really good job of separating their personality and not stepping on the toes of any of the other personalities that any of the actors are portraying, so each character has their own distinct role in the movie. Yes, there's so much diversity within the characters and the acting towards them that I think it gives an unexpected element to the audience. You don't really know how this is going to play out, who's going to become the survivor i guess almost yeah that it's very interesting and it kind of makes the story play out like a mystery like except in this case you're not trying to figure out who has done it you're trying to figure out who is going to do it yeah definitely an interesting take for the mystery aspect of it i'm just going to go back in the story really quick and i think the issue with the story not really progressing past a certain point is i think lack of location for me a story sometimes needs the locations to move around to progress it as well but in this movie you're stuck in one place and i like how the characters take it over but again the story just gets bland yeah you kind of get bogged down especially before the action starts because there's no diversity in the scenery and in the set and it's all kind of the same thing and them just playing around this this room right now were there any particular actors or characters that you felt stood out to you in terms of acting? I mean, I really like Walter Goggins' character, Chris Mannix. Uh, I know his acting can sometimes be hit and miss here and there, but I think he kind of gives the the most diverse performance because he's you know kind of possibly an antagonist, but then he's possibly also the protagonist. And his character, even though it stays in his own lane, his range of emotion goes from really low to really high in a matter of minutes in some of the scenes. How about you? What did you think of, of a standout actor? Yeah, I agree with you and your comments about Walton Goggins' character. For me, Jennifer Jason Lee really took it to a new level. Definitely not a typical role you would see her in. 
and almost becomes unrecognizable with the makeup, the effects, as well as her acting performance. I think the direction that was given to her character was also really phenomenal. But one of the supporting roles that I think had some pretty consistent acting throughout the film was Tim Roth. He did a really excellent job, even if he wasn't one of the main characters of the film. Yeah, for sure. I love Tim Roth and all of his roles. He's such an interesting actor. He's got such great expressions and such great inflection that he puts on his his lines. Absolutely. Now, before we move on, I actually kind of found Kurt Russell to be kind of weird in this role. He felt like he was a bit like stuck out like a sore thumb, especially to start the movie, because he's he's Kurt Russell. Like he's not really a, a character actor. He's he is himself, and it kind of took me an hour or so in this movie to get used to him being this character and not just you know just being Kurt Russell. Yeah, I agree. In most of his roles, there's a certain charm that he brings to the movie and the character. Even in movies like Death Proof, where he plays more of a villainous character, he's still got some charm that draws the audience in. But in this one, there's a lack of it, and it's really different to see Kurt Russell in that role. Mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons it's weird is because the character doesn't seem smart enough for Kurt Russell to play it. Like the the character is kind of getting caught up in some simple things, where you've you know Kurt Russell's often played the hero where he's always the smartest guy. And in this one, it's it's kind of a weird role for him. Yes, he was definitely directed that way to be, of course, for the story to unfold with him not making to the end. But yes, definitely an odd dynamic to see him in. Now, another thing I felt that this film lacked in regard to the characters is the connection between the audience and the characters. Even in Django Unchained, you feel the connection to King Schultz, Django, Broomhilda, all the people like that. But I found when watching this film there wasn't really any characters I felt any sympathy or empathy towards. And so to me, it almost brought me out of the film because it didn't matter as much to me what happens at the end because there's no one I'm favoring here. Yeah, I totally agree. I felt the same way. I think that may be because Tarantino doesn't want you to get attached to anyone and feel like they're the ones that's going to come out. But that just kind of makes you feel weird and doesn't let you kind of put yourself into the movie or put yourself in anyone's shoes. Yeah, and watching these two films almost back-to-back, Django Unchained and Hateful Eight, it takes a 180 flip for these two films where you got the sympathy in the first one and not in the second one. And maybe that's why it stands out so much more when watching The Hateful Eight. Yeah, for sure. Now, let's dive into the cinematography for a second. Lots of great scenery. Lots of great camera shots that show it so well. Yeah, I really like that that opening sequence with all the establishers, like awesome scenery with the mountains and the snowy trees. And I felt that those establishers really helped set the scene. Even if, you know, 20 minutes in the movie, we end up in a cabin for the next three hours. Yeah. And with those establishing shots and it being the snow and the mountains and everything, the snow becomes the driving force to bring all these characters to this cabin where everything unfolds, the story unfolds. And so that's a great thing to put into the establishing shot and a great decision made for that. Yeah, it definitely sets up the conflict and and why they all end up together. My favorite part of the cinematography for this movie has to be the choice of lenses and the film that they used. So this movie was shot all in 70 millimeter film with ultra pan vision 70 anamorphic lenses that have a ratio of 2.76 to 1, which is very wide. And it's 
gives a lot of scenes this really cool look. I really like the close-up scenes on longer lenses, like how I was saying in Django Unchained. But this one, how wide it is, it gives a different feel because it's less tense because there's so much more space on either side of the character in their close-up. Yes, Tarantino gives this film an old school feeling um, with the 70 millimeter. Um, He often likes to revisit forgotten traits about the cinema. And he, of course, choosing the 70 for this really add an interesting dynamic when watching it. I think there was a lack of action throughout the film. But I think seeing these camera shots added some of the missing voids as well. Yeah, for sure. There's just such great diversity in the shot choices. This movie is directed by Robert Richardson, same director of photography for the Django Unchained movie. And you can see that similarity of how they choose different lengths of lenses to tell a story differently. And they have a good variation of camera movement from whether it's a static shot or it's some just like a tilt or a pan or if it's a, a dolly shot or a steady cam shot. And this movie, it's got it all and it uses it all very well in order to tell the story. I will say that I think this one, it doesn't add as much as in Django Unchained. Like it still serves telling the story really well. But in Django Unchained, there were some scenes where the camera gave stuff that the story didn't. It kind of put the unspoken into your visuals. Whereas in this movie, it kind of more follows what's going on with the story and doesn't add too much outside of what you already are getting from the story. Yeah, I agree. And to go back, this is one of my least favorite Tarantino films. And so I think it is hard to make up for the lack of story and the lack of everything else that's in a typical Tarantino story. So to me, the use of the 70 millimeter would be lost on this film. And I'd almost kind of wish that it would have been in one of his more popular films that everyone has come to love. Yeah, like I'm not sure what they shot Django Unchained on, but it, it did look like it wasn't quite as wide. And I think that this setup for, for The Hateful Eight would have been perfect for Django. Absolutely. But I still think that both of these movies are incredible cinematography, and I really wouldn't change much about them. Just my own personal likes and dislikes. Yes, I agree. Still great all around. Tarantino, he's never failed to disappoint with any movie he's made, but just comparing to other of his films, I would still put it below. Yeah. Now, there was one really cool scene at the end of this film that I want to talk about. It's pretty technical, but bear with me. So the scene is at the end, you've got Chris Mannix and Samuel Jackson's character in the background. Chris Mannix is obviously Walton Goggins' character. He's leaned up against a pole after just shooting Crazy Daisy. And he's in the foreground and Sam Jack is in the background. And they're both perfectly in focus. Yet the background behind Walton Goggins' character is out of focus and the background behind Samuel L. Jackson's character is in focus and it's just kind of this weird split focus thing and it's really cool and actually the way that they achieved it was using a split diopter so that camera actually had two different focus planes set up for each half of the screen and it's a really cool effect and like while Derry and I were watching it I got up instantly and I was like look at this look how cool this is and I was totally just blown away by how cool that shot was. Yeah, you definitely have some more knowledge of the cinematography behind it all than I do, of course, working on set. But when I watched this, it also gave me the feel of a point of view shot, potentially, from Jennifer Jason Lee's character, Crazy Daisy. 
is you've got the two parts of focus. You've got Walton Goggins and you've got Samuel L. Jackson, and she's focusing on them because she's just been shot. She's keeping an eye out, making sure everything's okay. And maybe the background stuff isn't as important to her because it's not a critical thing for her. That's just me. Yeah, and I like how you put that because each half of the screen is different. So it's kind of like each eye of hers is different. So maybe one eye is getting some blood in it. So that's why the background behind Chris Mannix is more blurry compared to Samuel L. Jackson's character. Yeah, it could be. Just some food for thought. Yeah, just our, our own speculation. Yes. Okay, so why don't we go to set and production design now? What did you think of the production design that was shown? We really only saw the whole thing throughout the whole movie, but what did you get from that? I actually kind of liked it. I mean, I obviously would like there to be more, but for just having one main set and a little bit of exterior stuff, I thought it was really well done. And there's a lot of character in that uh, Minnie's haberdashery that the, you can have different scenes playing out in different parts of the room like it did. And you can still get a kind of a different feel. Like you've got the bar and you've got the stove with the coffee and you've got the kitchen table and each of those kind of serves as a different room and it's the detail and everything in it. I think it's, it's really good. How about you? What did you think of our, our haberdashery set? Yeah, I agree with you there. Such a big place and so much, opportunity to see new things i think another thing on top of that though is the timeline that comes within the location you've got some flashbacks in the movie where things look different before michael madsen tim roth and all them came in some stuff got damaged some stuff like that so you're also seeing it in different lights through the movie as well which added some variety for the production design yeah for sure it kind of shifts as the time passes you go from during the the daytime when they show up and in the flashback scene as well it's brighter more high key and then you get to the night and everything kind of gets darker in terms of the movie story and as well as the set and it's it's a good reflection of of the story within the lighting and set design yes totally just one last thing i mean it's not a huge part of the movie but it is set in the mountains and i just thought that those mountain scenes especially the establishers at the beginning, so beautiful. And it just made me want to go up into the mountains watching this movie. Yeah, and similar to Django, of course, you got the same cinematographer. He totally delivers on that. He gives great shots. Yeah, I love the one where it's zoomed in on the on the cross and then it kind of you know, pans out and shows shows more of the environment. And they do do that twice in the movie, one in the flashback and one earlier in the movie. And it's it's a really cool shot because your focus is drawn to the crucifix, but you're still getting the mountains and everything in the background. Definitely. So now to dive into special effects, I think similar to Django Unchained, you've got the blood splat and everything like that, your typical Tarantino effects. Was there anything else that stood out to you, though? Uh, Not really. What stood out to me was how brutal the effects in this were. Like, I feel like they're because there's less of it than Django, it was almost more realistic in a way. Like, obviously, they're pretty similar, but just having less of it made it more more emphasis on when there was this the blood and guts special effects. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely held more power for the very few instances that we had of this throughout the film. Yeah. And it was honestly kind of scary for me at some points how graphic the special effects were and the makeup. 
Yeah, I could agree with that there. I think a lot of that for me comes almost just with Jennifer Jason Lee's character. For the whole movie, you've pretty much got her covered in blood or with some sort of makeup. Yeah. Through the whole duration of the film. Yeah, I think they in particular do a really good job with the makeup on her. Yeah, and I think that was pretty impressive because like any big film like this, you're shooting for so long. For her to have makeup or some sort of blood all over her or something like that for the whole duration, that means pretty much all day on set, or at least for the scenes that she's in that they're shooting, she'd have to be covered in this for the whole time. That's quite some dedication. Yeah, especially at the few scenes at the end when she's covered in her brother's guts. That that probably took a week for them to shoot. So every day she'd be showing up on set and getting covered in fake blood basically and and guts all in her hair and i can't can't imagine every day showing up and just getting your makeup done like you were just shot and so or someone in front of you was just shot it's pretty wild yeah it's pretty freaky but i think it adds intimidation to her character as well some of the time you can't even stand to look at her yeah and so it's pretty intimidating yeah for sure now for the sound design the man that was responsible for the sound design for this film was also responsible for films like The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly way back in the 60s. And of course, you get that iconic sound from that. Everyone knows it to hear it. But this was actually his only Academy Award for The Hateful Eight. He had never won anything before. What do you think about that? Well, I think that's that's pretty interesting. I really like the sound design in this movie. I don't like it quite as much as Django because the sound effects aren't as in-your-face in this one. It's a little more balanced. But I really like the music and how that plays in there's one scene that stands out in particular for me when they're running the line out to the outhouse and there's this very sinister music going on and it gives you the sense that something bad is going to happen when really all they're doing is just hammering stakes into the ground and running a line and there's probably not anything bad that's going to happen because it's pretty early in the movie but that music just makes you feel like there's something coming. Yeah, I think unlike Django Unchained, there's less of a connection to the music. It's more of an overall, pretty serious, like they're great sound effects, but you don't have that connection to events going on. And maybe the music playing throughout that whole thing is a bad situation all in all. So even if nothing bad is happening right there and then on the camera, it's still a bad environment. Yeah, it does a very good job of setting up the overall theme and keeping that theme consistent throughout the whole movie. Now, the one other thing that I like is how there are scenes within the movie where the actors actually play some instruments and that they take over for the score and the soundtrack. You've got the one character playing on the piano and he's playing music that fits it. There's some dramatic music, but also Jennifer Jason Lee's character playing a pretty nice tune at first. And then it gets dark and talks about death and dying. What did you think about that? I thought both those scenes are really cool and it really added an extra element to those scenes by having the actual characters be performing the music. I really like how creepy the second verse of Crazy Daisy's guitar solo was. And then, of course, you probably want to touch on how the other characters reacted to that. Yes, there is a scene immediately after where Kurt Russell grabs the guitar from her and actually smashes it off a post within the cabin. And you see a reaction from Jennifer Jason Lee, and she goes, oh, whoa, 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 stop. And she turns her head rapidly and you kind of see her come out of character a little bit and go look at the crew. And that's actually because it's a retro vintage guitar that Kurt Russell is smashing to pieces right in front of everybody. And I just think that's a really funny fact about the movie. Yeah, it's a interesting little little fact that goes along with the music in this movie. You wouldn't wouldn't think it, but 
they destroyed a piece of history to make this movie. Yeah, I guess you could put it that way. I think for the ending of this film, unlike Django Unchained, you don't really have a feeling about how it goes. Tarantino follows a typical structure where you've got the characters, some of the characters that have been there the longest end up being the survivors. But again, you have that lack of connection to the characters. And so I don't really have any positive or negative feelings towards how he decided to end that. How about you? Yeah, I agree. Like, I couldn't make up my mind when we were watching this, whether I wanted Crazy Daisy to make it out or I wanted Mannix and Samuel L. Jackson's character to make it out. And then, you know, they both end up presumably dying in the end. And it kind of just leaves you just like, oh, well, they all ended up dying anyways. But it is fun to kind of have that conflict of like, oh, who do I want to get out of this? Right. And I find it funny how you just mentioned there being two options, one being Walton Goggins and Samuel L. Jackson together, and one being Crazy Daisy. But I'm surprised you didn't think of the possibility of them escaping separately. Because to me, even close to the end, there's still some parts that aren't clarified if they're really on the same team or if they're going to turn on one another. So I think it's funny that you said that. I, I don't know. I guess I kind of always felt like Mannix was going to stay on Samuel L. Jackson's side just because his character never really seemed like a bad guy. He seemed like he was just kind of a bit unstable, but he had his heart was in the right place throughout the movie. Yeah, I could see it from that perspective. To get to a rating of the film, Daniel, you want to kick this off? I would love to. I definitely not going as high as Django, but I don't want to go as low as I did last week with the movies. So I think I'm kind of going to put it right in between Back to the Future and Django. And I'm going to go with a 7.5 here. Okay. I think I'm in the same wheelhouse as you, but I'm going to put it at a 7. Still great. Tarantino delivers on it still, but lower for me. Yeah, I think, it, you know, we can kind of put it in the same class as last week when we reviewed Back to the Future for totally separate reasons. Like that Back to the Future has a much better story and it's much more entertaining. Whereas this movie, the production quality and the cinematography is much higher and it's a much more aesthetically pleasing movie to watch. For sure. So that was our review of The Hateful Eight. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to introduce a new segment. And we're back. This week, we're introducing a new segment called Guess That Cast, where we'll each be reading off three actors from a movie, and the other has to try and guess what movie that is. I'm going to start it off by giving Darian three actors. First off, we've got Martin Sheen, then we've got Christopher Walken, and we've got Tom Hanks. Wow, that is a tough one, actually. Martin Sheen plays a pretty small role. Okay. I'm leaving out the main character, by the way. That makes a lot more sense then. Christopher Walken in this movie plays the older version of the main character. Is it Catch Me If You Can? It is Catch Me If You Can. Let's go. All right, for you, I've got Sarah Silverman, Chris Elliott, and Ben Stiller. Is this Meet the Parents? This is not Meet the Parents. Is this Night at the Museum? It is not. I named one of the three main characters, but the other two, not yet. Is this Zoolander? It is not. Is this Dodgeball? It is not Dodgeball, though. Also has Matt Dillon. It's from the 90s. Was Ben Stiller the lead actor in this? He was the lead male actor in this. There's a female actress as well. So this is like a rom-com. Yeah, I guess you could call it that. You got any other hints for me? The lead actress is Cameron Diaz. If that doesn't help you, then I don't think anything will. I feel like I can picture it in my head. It's just not coming to me. Do you want me to tell you? Yeah, give it to me. There's something about Mary. How did I not think of that? 
That's a great movie. Oh, man. Well, that wraps things up for today. Thanks for tuning in. Come back every week for a new episode of the Film Review Shack. Signing out. I'm Daniel. I'm Darian. And we are the Film Film Review Shack. Shack.